Welcome to the Tolenstone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Roger Crowley. Mr. Crowley, welcome, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Garrett. I'm uh, delighted to be talking to you. Oh, my great pleasure, too. So you've written a whole series of books on early modern Europe, covering everything from the Portuguese Empire to the Venetian Republic. But I want to talk today about your first book, uh, 1453, which explores the Ottoman siege and ultimate capture of Constantinople. Uh, This, of course, was far from the first siege that Constantinople had endured. There have been dozens of sieges before, almost often all all of them unsuccessful. Uh, So could you please uh, get get us rolling here by explaining some of the factors that made Constantinople so difficult for medieval armies to capture? Uh, it's a range of factors. One is position, that mm-hmm. Constantinople was actually surrounded by water on two sides, and therefore the the only bit that you have to defend if your attacker doesn't have a substantial navy is a four-mile land wall. And the Byzantines also had very effective naval forces. So attack from an enemy really has to be two-pronged. It has to be by land along a short, fairly short four-mile length and by sea. And there were very few armies that came to the city walls in the thousand years that the city survived. In fact, it was besieged 25 times in um, in that period. So it lived with sieges about every 40 years on a regular basis. Somebody would turn up and have a go at it. So really, they only had to defend a four-mile stretch. And that four-mile stretch was protected by a triple wall, really a, a masterpiece of Greco-Roman engineering, uh, consisted of an inner wall, an outer wall, a moat, with uh, killing fields between each of these areas, uh, something like 188 towers over the four miles of length, and walls that rose up to 60 feet. Now, nobody had the siege technology to tackle that kind of thing, uh, really, until the age of gunpowder. And, you know, there are many, many people had a crack at it. You know, the Russians came, the Bulgars came, the Abbas came, the Arabs came uh, several mm-hmm. times, but the technology and the, I suppose, the siege skills of the of the people of Constantinople, because in a sense, this is a city which lived by siege as part of its kind of mental apparatus, you know, mm-hmm. it, and it was well resourced within the city in terms of of water supply, and indeed there was land inside the city for for growing crops. So uh, you had uh, an official called the Count of the Walls, whose job was to ensure the walls were maintained properly. And really, they stocked up for siege as part of the realities of living in this city. Mm-hmm. So a whole host of factors um, centering on those great triple walls, but the city's position, um, its internal resources, and even its mentality um, all contributed to its resilience in the face of, of attackers. Um, but of course, in 1453, um, Byzantium is not what it once was. It's a fragment of an empire, um, a city-state, essentially, um, and is encircled by this large, growing empire, uh, the Ottoman Turks. And they have a dynamic young sultan, Mehmed II. 
Now, in, in your view, how important was the, the personality of Mehmed II in driving Ottoman strategy at this point, in driving them to attack Constantinople? Uh, would any young sultan have done the same thing he did, or is this a more of a personal matter? It, it's a difficult question to answer, actually. Of course. Uh, there yeah. had been previous sieges by Ottoman sultans. There have been five sieges, actually. So mm-hmm. it was kind of in the DNA of <laughs> the Ottoman people, that, that they wanted to capture this city. And there were all sorts of reasons, both strategic and religious, that related to um, the uh, sieges that go back to the Arab times, uh, to, to Islamic prophecy about the glory that would fall upon the sultan who took the city. So there was a driver within the Ottoman um, uh, mentality to to target the city. Uh, Mehmet, though, comes to it, I think, with a special um, vigor. He uh, had absorbed the idea of um, being kind of like an Alexander the Great of the um, Ottoman Empire. He uh, had indeed had the history of uh, Alexander the Great read to him uh, as part of his, um, you know, sort of reading matter. And mm-hmm. so he he inherited an extra special sense of destiny, I think, to to take the city and to do what none of his predecessors could do. So mm-hmm. he came to it, I think, with a kind of focused um, mentality and also a very great interest in military engineering. He read Italian books or had Italian books of of military theory read to him about siege techniques, um, about strategic um, approaches to taking cities. And he was a very bright guy. He thought through Mm -hmm. all the issues that you have to have a fleet, you've got to cut off um, supplies coming from up the Black Sea, you've got to gather coherently a large army at the same time you have to mobilize both in terms of of, um, strategic command but also and in terms of raising a sort of um, jihadi spirit among the uh, Islamic world so he brought all these forces together and I think he had a determination that was unmatched by any of his predecessors I think the city would have fallen in time um, I think it was probably inevitable given the balance of power and the way that things were going. But mm-hmm. undoubtedly, he was unique in the forensic focus that he brought to trying to take this place. Hmm. So we have a, a young sultan who is especially equipped and especially uh, motivated to capture Constantinople. He's assembled this massive army. He's laid the groundwork for a, a grand siege. And uh, in the early spring of 1453, he begins marching on the city and erases forces then just outside the grand land walls. So could you compare for us um, the, for- the forces that Mehmed had at, at his disposal with those that were inside the walls of the now beleaguered city? Mehmet had brought together a vast army. It's unfortunately a game that's unwinnable in trying to count um, Mm. Islamic armies. I mean, conventionally, Christians will always say there are 200,000 people. (laughs) Um, What what comes to the siege are um, his regular army, volunteers, people conscripted, uh, Christians from the Balkan states, but also um, a huge logistical core 
a vast amount of baggage, uh, animals, um, people who are going to put up tents, people who are going to provide supplies. Um, and we think of the Ottomans as great fighters, but they were also very good bean counters. They were very good at managing <laughs> the logistics of war, the supplies that you need. Uh, and so probably he might have had a fighting army of about sixty to 80,000 men, but uh, a, a sort of support corps that could be double that. So if you were looking out from the walls of the city, you would see this vast um, array of, of human beings, tents, horses, camels, animals, equipment, uh, which would have, you know, blown the minds of the defenders, but would have certainly probably increased their estimation of, of the forces that they were mm -hmm. fighting by at least double. I would say that he probably had 80,000 men. But as the Battle of Agincourt fought at the same time, and the major battle only involved 35,000 men, mm -hmm. this is kind of an extraordinary um, right. number of people. On, on the... Um, Christian side, well, it wasn't that difficult to count them because um, that's just what Constantine did. And it came to something <laughs> like 7,851 men. He was slightly hampered in the in this because, because of doctrinal trouble within uh, Constantinople over the relationship with the Catholic Church, um, quite a number of the Greeks would not fight. Um, because of um, the dispute between the Greek Orthodox Church uh, and the Church in Rome. Uh, but we know that he really had a very, very small army. And this was made up of um, local uh, Greek forces, of uh, mercenaries from Italy, um, uh, resident Venetians, and um, among these were one or two kind of quite valuable people a siege engineer, um, Genoese siege engineer called Giovanni Giustiniani, who was a very, very skilled siege um, defensive expert and was an extremely valuable man. So the, the numbers are in, obviously in, completely disparate between the two sides, but um, the, what they had was a reasonably motivated in fact you've got volunteers rather like fighting the spanish civil war or something people mm -hmm. came from you know across europe there were spanish people there there was even a, a scottish um mm -hmm. mining engineer there we never worked out what he was doing but um who came to defend the walls um so he had a small reasonably elite force i think of people but the difference between the, the number of people involved was huge okay so the, the defenders are outnumbered something like 10 to 1, um, even though they are highly motivated and quite skilled. Um, and the Ottomans have this vast force at disposal. They array themselves outside the land walls, um, which are, you know, a thousand years old, despite many repairs. And uh, so what are, um, in Mehmed's initial estimation, the, the weakest points in this vast circuit of walls? Everybody knew, and past sieges had, had known, that mm -hmm. in the middle of the walls, there's a river called the River Lycos, and it's funneled down into a valley. And the, at that point, the walls do not have a great superiority over the surrounding land, so they're, they're comparatively quite low there. Also, because of uh, the water that comes into the city, which is actually probably quite important from the water supply point of view, it makes it very difficult to dig a decent moat. 
So, if you are on the Ottoman side, um, you're 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 not, you're not quite level with the top of the land walls, but but you 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 the the distance between the depth, the height of the land walls, and, mm -hmm. and the and the ground around has shrunk by quite a lot. So, this is the, one of the key points. Uh, the other key point: this is a, a triple wall, inner wall, outer wall, moat with with killing zones between them. But at the northern end. Because of the terrain, there is only, uh, I mean, it's quite rocky there. There is only a single wall, a little bulge that goes out to the Golden Horn, and there is no moat. So that is also another area for the uh, any defending uh, siege team to attack. But effectively, they're going to concentrate their fire on this middle section of the wall with the valley. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, so with these uh, weaknesses in mind, with their forces arrayed, the siege finally begins. Um, and it is, of course, you know, everyone knows it's a big deal. It's an epical event. But uh, our textual sources, when I understand, are surprisingly both, uh, say, scanty and difficult to use. Uh, why is that? It's a very good question, actually. And, and I think it, it it's results in a large amount of holes in, in hmm. you know, understanding of the siege. I think on the Ottoman side, because that's an easy one to answer, there is no history of writing um, first-hand accounts, almost. Hmm. I mean, if you try to read the Ottoman sources, they, they go into this kind of flowery language about, you know, it's completely useless when you're as a historian <laughs> trying to find out this is a big deal for them. This is a big event in their history. Right, right. And you get something like the flower of Islam slew the infidel <laughs> at the gates of felicity. Yeah, this is great, but actually doesn't help us very much. Um, and there's only one, one first-hand source from the Ottomans, which is when one of the sheikhs says to um, Mehmet, you're going to lose this siege unless you get your act together. On the Christian side, um, they were kind of probably quite busy defending the walls. Mm. Uh, but there are about... Six or seven sieges of varying degrees of authenticity and usefulness. Um, there was a, an Italian Venetian doctor there called Nicola uh, Barbaro who wrote a diary. There are about um, three or four other other guys of uh, Ducos, George Thranthes, um, uh, 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 a rather kind of confused account by a Russian Orthodox guy called. Uh, Iskander. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's made more complicated because um, George Francis uh, wrote an account, and then there's another account which is really good, and um, uh, people have used this a lot. And then they discovered that it was a forgery, you know, about <laughs> two hundred years later. <laughs> um, uh, uh. There are some people standing back a little while who are not involved in the siege. Um, um, Kritovululus of Imbros is one, uh, and um, one or two others, but who obviously collect information um, quite effectively afterwards. But mm -hmm. the amount of first-hand stuff, and also because, of course, we have to say that a lot of people did not survive, you know, who, who would have provided. Um, right. So, so a lot of the time you're reading between the lines, actually. And if you read the Turkish accounts, which I have done rather slowly, um, <laughs> they rest almost entirely on the, the Christian sources. And it is absolutely frustrating 
you know that um that we we don't know more so you're picking your way through um the terrain of what people say of what they think they say of what you mm-hmm. can deduce from uh from the evidence on the ground um but it remains uh frustrating and there are an awful lot of holes uh you know m- quite a mystery thing here which i'm afraid we'll never find out it would help if the uh turkish government ever allowed some archaeology just mm-hmm. outside the walls the, outside the walls in 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 the old ditches they now mm-hmm. grow vegetables and they could oh, they right. could dig them up and find out <laughs> <laughs> but i don't know what it is there's there's um, there's something sort of i don't know what it is it's something technical and uh, not technical but but ideological mm-hmm. somehow in in what they mm-hmm. want to know and what they want to find out archaeology would help us i think but it's obviously not going to give us the first hand stories the first hand stories that we have are, are quite good you know and quite gripping mm-hmm. um but you are kind of trying to work your way through this really um and um i i think that the fact that many of the first hand witnesses to this did not survive really that you know if mm-hmm. more people had got away we'd probably have had more information but it is frustrating Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And actually, I, I do know as an ancient historian, you know, you have these, a few you know, voices echoing in the dark and you want so much more. You want a chorus. Yeah, you always and, want uh, more. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, so from what we do know, and of course, and there's the caveats that we don't know much about many critical bits of this siege, um, gunpowder is critical, as you mentioned earlier, that it's the element that allows these ancient land walls to finally be breached. And there's a, an engineer on the Ottoman side uh, named Urban, apparently, a Hungarian, it seems, maybe German, um, who builds these very large cannons. I think you call them super guns uh, in, in your book. Um, how pivotal for the uh, success of the Ottoman siege are these enormous cannons? I think um, the Orban, who actually offered his services to Constantine uh, mm-hmm. first, but Constantine didn't have the money, unfortunately, to employ him. Um, mm-hmm. I think that he there's one enormous gun you were called the Basilica, the uh, the great mm-hmm. cannon, which was um, constructed in a forge at uh, a city called Edirne, about um, I can't remember a hundred miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, and extraordinarily expensive to make. Um, and this gun is brought to the walls. Um, and um, overall, we think that the Ottomans had about 70 cannon of different sizes. Undoubtedly, there was a kind of psychological aspect to um, this this super gun. Mefe mm-hmm. made it quite uh, announced to the... Um, Byzantines, that this thing is coming, it's coming for you. you know. So there's a lot of uh, propaganda around this. Um, we don't really know, but I, I think Orban, with this gun, with its half-ton stone balls and so on, was working at the limits of metallurgy. And mm-hmm. we do know that it fired for a certain amount of time, and then it cracked. And I suspect that the real damage was done by... The slightly smaller cannon mm-hmm. working in teams. They they have two slightly um, uh, s- uh, smaller cannons and a big cannon trying to aim in a kind of V shape called the bear and cubs to try mm-hmm. and chisel yeah. away a piece of wall. What is critical to um, the success of their cannon 
is that they can keep them firing, and they keep them firing for uh, 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 nearly 50 days, 40-something 40, 40 days, 47 days. Mm-hmm. And this is remarkable, and this is the feat of um, of logistics, really, that they had gathered together all the resources for um, and a supply chain of gunpowder, um, cannonballs. Um, the cannonballs were... Um, constructed by masons on the shores of the Black Sea, brought over in ships. They would have been ordered to certain diameters. Um, mm-hmm. And to to create that that ability to keep com, to continue to supply your cannon with ammo and with gunpowder, really, so that they kept firing, was extraordinary. They also had um, on-site... Um, uh, metal foundries, small sales foundries, where they could repair small cannons. Extraordinary, and most of the scrap bronze that came for the uh, use of these cannon was the result of melting down the church bells of the Balkans. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like turning your um, uh, plowshares back into salt. If you want to put it like that. So, so really, it was the fact that they could keep firing for such a long period. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the super gun probably didn't fire for all that long, but it was just the the intensity and the continuation of the fire of firing, and the kind of psychological pressure that mm-hmm. this put on the defenders. You know, they'd never seen anything like this before, and it just went on and on day after day. It was a remarkable achievement. Hmm. So it's less about one uh, big Bertha style gun and more just these this constant barrage that went on and on for more than a month. And of course, the psychological impact, as you said. So given their very limited resources, um, how effective was the Byzantines' plan of defense against uh, this constant barrage and the vast besieging army? It was surprisingly effective. Um, they made... Uh, quite a lot of holes in the walls. We think about seven or eight, and some of them in the end were about 30 yards long. But Justiniani came up with what was a pretty good solution, really, um, which was um, to fill in the walls with uh, timber and with with earth. And um, the effect that this had really was that the the impact by 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 creating a a sort of um a stockade that was faced with with stone and and mm-hmm. mud effectively they absorbed the velocity of impact of the cannonballs quite well it's like sort of throwing a stone into mud mm-hmm. and this was this was actually a pretty good you know defense so um it it enabled um you know, it, it required a non-stop effort by the whole city. You know, women and children were would come lugging up these great um, these baskets of earth to you know to carry mm-hmm. out the repairs. Obviously, exhausting, continuous business. But this um, this method of um, of repairing the walls worked pretty well and was continuously frustrating. They would put dump. Um, wicker baskets on top to provide crenellated um, battlements to, to, to hide behind and shoot out from. So Giussiniani's defense technique was was really quite successful and, and very frustrating that they couldn't easily make 
a clear breach in the walls to to have a go at. Um, so so yeah, it, it worked quite well. So thanks to the efforts of Justiniani and the other captains and the high morale inside the city, they managed to hold off the Ottomans for what seems like a, quite a long time, at least to Mehmed, who had wanted to take the city almost immediately. And he focuses, eventually, um, on the Golden Horn, which had been protected by a great chain from his own fleets. He says he, has to, he decides he has to take this over um, and uh, create a, a larger front for the defenders to try to defend. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about how he takes the Golden Horn and about how significant this is um, for the progress of the siege? This is one of the great mystery gaps in the story, I think. Uh -huh. um, the Golden Horn was closed by a chain by the defenders. And um, Mehmet stunned the, um, the Christians by arriving with quite a reasonable fleet, um, mainly made up of Greeks who can impress Greeks. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a sea battle off the walls in which um, Mehmet's fleet was roundly defeated or failed to capture the rest of the ships that had arrived to provide supplies. Um, and he had a harbour a little bit further up uh, the Bosphorus. And the, the of the two seaward sides, on the other side, the Marmarist side, um, it was, it was extremely difficult to make a landing because the currents are quite strong there. But the Golden Horn was a placid water. Mm -hmm. So he really wanted to, if he could get, if he could break the chain or get behind the chain, this would force defenders away from the wall. They'd have to defend another three or four miles of wall. And this would be strategically helpful and might help to, for him to ferry men across more easily. According to the legend as it goes, um, on the other side of the Golden Horn, there was a, a Genoese um, town uh, called Galata. Um, and the Genoese were kind of playing a double game. They were kind mm -hmm. of neutral, sitting in the middle, didn't really not knowing what to do. Uh, but behind this, as far as the story goes, um, Mehmet had a very large uh you know, supply and support core that he um, put um, a number of his ships, and I, and I can't remember how many it was now, I, I can't remember 20 or 40, but it was quite a fair number, on greased uh, um, planks and had them hauled up behind Galata and into the Golden Horn <laughs> all in one night. Now, um, if you do that now, it's quite a steep climb from the site up through. Istanbul's main shopping street. Yeah, it's quite a street thing. <laughs> right. And then down the other side. Um, and the mystery is how he could do this um, in secrecy, in secrecy, so that on the following morning, when the defenders looked out of the um, uh, from the sea walls, they saw these ships being rolled into the Golden Horn. Uh, how had they not found out about it? How had the Genoese not told them? And nobody really knows. The ergonomics involved in this are um, perplexing. I mean, yes, he, they were very good at practical engineering, the Ottomans, and they had, um, you know, as I say, a very large labor corps. But it's still likely that actually they didn't do that, that they had their, these are galleys, they're not huge ships, um, uh, taken to pieces, um, mm. carried up and, and reconstructed. And this has been done in other places. The Venetians have done it in lakes in Italy. So, but we, we really don't know. Um, uh, 
And it, it forms part of the heroic story as far as the Ottomans and Turks are concerned. Great pictures of these ships mm-hmm. being holed up, you know, <laughs> by teams of men and oxen. Uh, they might have done it. They might have done it. But we just don't know. Uh, right. But it was strategically quite important because um, it, it certainly spooked the defenders, you know, very badly. And the following night, they set out um, uh, in the dark to make a midnight attack on this small flotilla of ships. And somehow it seems that they were betrayed by mm. somebody within the um, the Genoese um uh, town, probably by a, a signal from a, the, the big tower there, which is still there, called the mm-hmm. Galata Tower. And they were, the surprise was undone. Um, they uh, they were, and the counterattack was um, incredibly successful. Ships were, were sunk, men were captured, and then the following morning, impaled on stakes mm-hmm. outside the walls to freak out the defenders. So it was a, it was, it was a, it was a masterstroke of um, strategy by Mehmet mm-hmm. and undoubtedly tipped the balance, both in morale and in terms of the disposition of forces, quite effectively. It was mm-hmm. a great move. Okay, so now that the Ottomans control the Golden Horn, um, the defenders have a, an increasingly long front to defend. Um, and yet the walls stubbornly refuse to fall. And so Mehmed decides um, in yet another uh, attempt to create more stress for the defenders to try to dig beneath them with these uh, Saxon, these German uh, miners he has at his disposal. Can you talk a bit about this attempt to undermine the walls and about uh, how significant it was again in kind of bringing the city to its knees? It's an interesting one, that, and one that I haven't thought about in a great deal of detail until you raised it. But... um, (laughs) Conventionally, mining had always been, certainly within the Arab tradition, one of the most effective ways of taking a city. If you look at Saladin and, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the, the, the undermining, the, you know, they were very, very good at, at, at mining technology. And they had these silver miners from uh, the Balkans. Um, Partially, I think that geology was not on their side. Mm. I think um, the terrain was probably quite rocky. Um, um, uh, the ground was was open, and it, it was they couldn't conventionally. I think with the sieges, what you do is you you edge your way up as close as you can by by advancing, putting up screens, and then and then the closer you get, the, tu- the easier the tunneling becomes they for one reason or another they were incapable of doing this uh, effectively um until later on in the siege it seems that the miners were only brought into play quite late on mm-hmm. and um they were successful in uh creating um some tunneling under the walls i mean the aim of tunneling is is not actually to get in to put people inside it's a very ineffective way of you know one man at a time popping out of a tunnel it is to make a large chamber under the walls um uh get some wood in there set fire to it bring down the wall but this is a triple defensive line and so you've got to do this several times they obviously did manage to get under the walls but um the countermining was very effective 
the Scottish siege engineer, Duncan Grant, <laughs> uh, had an effective m- m- method of detecting uh, earth disturbance under underground. They used to put down buckets of water and just and any kind of ripple on the surface would be mm. a, a detection device as to the fact that there's something going on. And Duncan, um, um, sorry, David, David Grant, I think he was, um, uh, got countermining in there, um, counterminers in there. And with the element of surprise, they managed to pull down the, um, to pull down the, the, the tunnels and effectively mi- mining proved to be ineff- ineffective. I think at this stage, Mehmet was getting desperate because he also tried another very old-fashioned siege tech, uh, uh, technology, which was, you know, wheeled towers, which okay. are very vulnerable. And you know, even if you cover them in goat skin or something, it was meant to, you know, they were they were quickly destroyed. So these these feel like l- sort of last-ditch um, attempts to, you know, you have to say that the convention in Islamic siege warfare is. That that they always went for the quick knockout blow, mm-hmm. because you bring people to the wall, um, and you and you 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 rally people in a spirit of jihad, uh, you know, for this you know this great thing, and you can only keep first you can only keep the enthusiasm of people going mm. for a certain amount of time, and conventionally it was about four weeks in you know and there are. Islamic siege manuals on this, really, but also the logistics. If you do the logistics of um, providing um, food, um, latrine facilities, fodder for horses, it becomes dangerous after about four weeks in terms of all the of disease outbreaks. You know, um, typhoid and and you know waterborne diseases and so on. Although the the Ottomans like their Islamic predecessors being nomadic people they were extremely good at camping they understood the rules of unlike christian armies which were totally chaotic when they set up camp <laughs> they they were really well organized and they and you know remove the remove the excrement you know provide clean water and so on you can only manage that for a certain period of time mm-hmm. and mehmet knew after about four weeks you know uh six seven weeks six seven weeks that he was running out of, of time and the patience of his um, men, and part of the part of the lure for a lot of uh, of, of volunteers was the idea of booty. You know that you were mm-hmm. going to get, in, in, and and therefore keeping these people together, even if you know, even if they're driven by the spirit of you know jihadi um, uh, fire, and you know. Um, prophecies of the of the prophet muhammad they can only be kept there a certain period of time so mm. both the mining and the siege engines look like things that actually this is getting a little bit desperate and uh, neither of those those work terribly well so in the end you know you're gonna have to rally your men for a concerted all-out attack i mean they had made uh, attacks on on the breaches along the way but they mean continuously um driven out and sometimes there have been counter forays by um by Justiniani's men you know raids to keep them out um but and critical to that is you have to fill in the moat and mm-hmm. they you know they put in a lot of 
effort in doing that, you know, hurling in anything they could, dead bodies, um, dead horses, bits of wood, you know, anything they could find to to create a bridge because you had to drop down about seven feet along the bottom and then climb up again, which makes you incredibly vulnerable. So a lot of effort towards the end would have gone into filling up the moat so that you can at least get to, you know, the first line, proper line of defense um, in reasonable time at a reasonable speed. So by the time we get to, um, you know, 40-something 40, 40 days, mm-hmm. it's it's really time that you've either got to do do it or you've got to uh, give back. And there was a lot, a lot at stake for Mehmet in this. This is a very high high-risk strategy for him. Mm-hmm. Young Sultan, you have to legitimize your Sultan by a victory. He had been for a short time Sultan before because his father had abdicated and he'd made a complete mess of it <laughs> and his and his um and his father had to come back. So this is dangerous for Mehmet. He will be, he could possibly be killed and and replaced by um Actually, he was the only surviving brother, so I don't know what would have happened. But (laughs) this is a high-risk strategy for him. So after after 45 days, um, he's really got to go for it, uh, fight the men up to fight, uh, and and it's all or nothing. Mm -hmm. So this this final do-or-die, you know, no-holds-barred final assault um, takes place on uh, Tuesday, uh, May 29th, 1453. Um, so his men are lined up, they're, they're keyed up to fever pitch, and the assault finally begins in the early morning hours. Can you walk us through these next few hours, the critical hours, um, as the assault washes over uh, the defenses of Constantinople? Yeah, everybody knows it's coming. They know it's coming from in the walls. There have been three days. They've seen three days of fasting uh, and feasting, a ring of fire at night, uh, and they know this is coming. Um the Christians go in for a final um, church service in the great mother church of Hagia Sophia, um, and the sides prepare themselves for battle. Um, yes, the Ottomans um, have psyched their men up with um, uh, uh, the imams going through the uh, mm-hmm. through the uh, the the, um, the troops, um, promising them, you know that. Paradise will await them. There are there are great promises of rewards for the first man up the walls, and they're, and they're they're ready to go. Uh, within the walls, ditto. They have prepared themselves. They have um, uh, psyched themselves up. They have paraded their their great the their most holy icons along the city walls. Um, they have worked out that the uh, as everybody's aware that this attack is going to take place in this middle section where the river is, about a thousand yards long. Uh, By this time, uh, the number of men available to Constantine is about 2,000. He cannot really afford to to man the whole wall. So it's lightly defended along either end and not much along the, the seashore. So he's he's really marched most of his men. There's a double wall, the inner wall and the outer wall, and he knows that there is no going back. So what he does is he marches his men into this uh, this critical sector of uh, of about um, I don't know a thousand yards, something like that. Um, Two thousand men, and uh, between the inner and the outer walls, um, they have only ever 
really been able to defend uh, the walls at the outer wall because they didn't have enough men to defend the depth defense in a wall. Um, and but the, to do or die um, uh, with um, and the the door into the city through the inner wall is locked behind them, so they're mm -hmm. going to go down. Um, what what Mehmet does conventionally is um, the uh, all sieges begin with a great wall of noise. Of, they have a complete military band there, trumpets, drums, you know, to which is really to kind of inspire people and drive the fear out of them. But being um, what he is, um, you send out your troops in in order of their you know ascendancy of usefulness. So, <laughs> so you send out. Um, the volunteers or the conscripts first. This, this, these are kind of the cannon fodder, um, mm -hmm. and really, it's it's really just sending out waves of men to be mown down. First of all, your your volunteers or your Christian conscripts who have been ordered to the siege. Then your um, your your um, your infantry who are um, uh, who are subjects of the Sultan. Uh, who own land from him and and therefore uh, are beholden to him, and these are quite highly trained men. And behind that, you have your crack troops, your janissaries, and so you're just going to send wave after wave of men out into the um, into the line of fire, uh, and and really just and just attritional. You know, mm. you wear them down. Uh, so the first wave rush forward. There are about, I think, seven or eight gaps in the walls, and which they're aiming for. Um, and um, for the first, the, this begins early in the morning, yeah, yeah one o'clock, two o'clock before dawn. Um, the the defenders do pretty well. The first wave is slaughtered, um, just to make sure nobody turns tail uh, from the Ottoman side uh, behind these. Uh, Behind these, uh, this cannon fodder lair, he has uh, men with um, swords and chains to whip mm. them back into the into battle. So you know, it's a kind of <laughs> right, yeah. uh, we're we're going to climb up over your dead bodies, mate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when it yeah, comes right. down to it, um, so um, and really for quite a long time, the Christians do extremely well. Um, but um, obviously, this is exhausting. Um, uh, you know, and um, uh, and there is attrition of, of of people, and his his calculation method is that he will in the end just wear down. Um, but it's getting desperate. The first line uh, go, the second line um, do make it into uh, do make a breach into the um, mm -hmm. through the outer wall, um, but get massacred. And push back, and it's going to get to a point when he's going to have to call up his janissaries, his track crews to, you know, this is it. If they don't do it, um, but two things happen really, which um, really spook the uh, defence. And one is that there's a certain amount, I think, of um, uh, there's a certain amount of the sorties taking place from. From the, the walls, from little, um, you know, little gates out to, to drive people back, mm -hmm. and it said that up towards the northern end, which is the end where there's only a single wall, somebody left a gate open, mm -hmm. 
and a small number of um uh, of um Turks managed to get in and get up onto the wall uh, and plant a banner and this kind of is a morale incredibly damaging for morale they're not there for very long long they're driven off but it's but it's um but it's you know it kind of it it's, it spooks the the defense mm. the second thing that happens is that Justiniani, who is undoubtedly um exhausted by the um uh, by by you know his incredibly effective siege management over over this so many weeks um gets hit by a bullet and we don't know exactly where there's no visible wound but probably just under his breastplate uh. and he knows that this is serious nobody else can see it um and um he, he uh, met um Constantine has the key around his neck. Giovanni Giustiniani says, I can't fight on. You know, I I need to go. I need medical help. Uh, And Constantine says, well, if you go, we're lost. You know, but Giustiniani, I think his morale are probably gone. He said, I I can't fight. I'm dying. I'm a dying man. Um, So reluctantly, Constantine opens the gate, and it's one narrow gate about, you know, an ordinary, mm-hmm. you know, gate. Uh, and, of course, the defense, when they see their, the kind of iconic, you know, commander leaving the field of battle, um, as Constantine recognized, you know, they panic. There's only one small exit from this trap they're trapped within these walls um and at that point the defense collapses and the ottomans are then are able to to get up onto the walls a bit further up and down and i get onto the inner wall behind mm-hmm. uh and so constantine and pete men are then completely trapped and and massacred within this enclosed arena and it's all over the whole thing is just you know over mm-hmm. um and most of them are killed some people get away constantine just disappears and is never seen again uh, uh and the siege is over in you know by probably about 10 o'clock in the morning 11 o'clock in the morning and then they start to work their way into the city and it's, and, and and the defense collapses there's enough there are no troops within the city there are no you know mm-hmm. there's no further resistance and they can, and then they can get in over the ships from in the Golden Horn can mm-hmm. land. They can land people, and 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 so they can converge on the city from from all sides and and get into the center of the city and eventually get right into the center of the city, right in the heart of the city, the great mother church of Hagia Sophia. There are ten thousand people. It's, it is a huge building, mm-hmm. uh, and I I believe there could well have been ten thousand uh, men, women, and children sheltering in there uh the door is battered open and and you know they're captured and for a while there's there's a massacre but not for very long because they realize that the ottomans realize that you know there is no resistance and slaves are valuable so you might as well start enslaving people rather than mm-hmm. killing yeah. them and looting you know 
you know, they're starting to look for all this fantastic treasure that they've been told they're going to find. I mean, really, um, you know, I think if you said at the beginning, um, this city is a, uh, is a shadow of what it was, <laughs> was in, you know, in, right. in its heyday. Um, and a lot of the gold and stuff is gone, but there's probably still quite a lot of stuff knocking around for people to, to but people might be the main, you know, might be the most valuable thing that mm-hmm. you're going to get from it. And, and so, you know, that is the end of, you know, a thousand years of, uh, of, of this extraordinary Christian city. Yeah. So that's, and then, and, that, and so the city falls uh, infamously. Now, if Justiniani hadn't been hit by that bullet, you know, all these great ifs of history, if the Kirkoporta hadn't been breached, you know, if, 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 um, mm. if the Janissaries hadn't come over the wall, um, if mm. this assault had failed, um, do you think Mehmed would have at that point called the siege off, come back next year? And of course, it's all hypotheticals, but your sense of how desperate he was. I think he would uh, have called, he'd have to call the siege off. I think there would have been a crisis within uh, the in, within the Ottoman state. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, you know, this is quite risky for him. It's quite possible that he might have been killed um uh and 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 then something completely different would have happened i think um he himself would not have given up i mean as as long as he could somehow retain his legitimacy of sultan he would have to have come back again mm-hmm. um and we have to say when you look at the situation you look at the um you know the disparity of manpower you look at the state of the city then you look at the fact that probably nobody you know attempts to get the papacy to send um mm-hmm. uh, you know um resources was dependent upon submission to the catholic church and the greeks were never going to do that there was a point mm-hmm. at which some of the greeks said Rather the rather the Sultan's turban than the Cardinal's mm. hat, you know, they were kind <laughs> of on another plane as far as uh, theology was concerned. Um, so sooner or later, it was going to be over for this city. It couldn't survive as a Christian city. It was inevitable. Um, so whether Mehmet was in a position to come back the following year or whether he was dead, we don't know. I suspect he probably would be in a position because he was he was kind of powerful and resourceful. Mm. Um, um yeah it would have it would have been just been another year it would have been another another time mm-hmm. um but of course it does fall in 1453 and mehmed you know takes the city as his new capital and uh, moving there from moderna um and and soon's uh, begins to consider himself the the heir apparently of the byzantines emperors um calls himself roman emperor in some of his correspondence with uh, the european states um in your opinion and this of course is a matter of opinion does he have some justification in the way he rules and how he presents himself um, as being a sort of successor to the Byzantine emperors? It's an interesting one, that. Um, <laughs> uh, I think the um, the Ottomans, and, and indeed his successors, are obsessed by this title of, of Caesar. Of, of, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose you could say that they were inheriting most of the footprint of the Eastern Roman Empire, you know, you know, um, um, Asia Minor um, down to Egypt and North Africa, um, um, 
along the Black Sea, um, into the Balkans. So, so I think, you know, in terms of territorial um, footprint, you could say that um, the Ottomans had inherited, you know, Byzantium, I mean, obviously not in its great heyday of, you know, Justinian and so on when they ring the Mediterranean, um, although the, the Ottomans did fairly well on that, certainly on the southern shore. So I think, yes, in terms of territory, yes, they probably could claim, claim it. I don't know. I don't quite know what um, what the full credentials for, for being <laughs> Caesar are, really. Oh, right. You know, um, I mean, after all, you know, um, uh, Constantine was not well. He, he was he was effectively um, emperor of the um, uh, emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, you know, and you, and that's what Mehmet was. So you could say. Yes, he was. You know, yes, he was inheriting that. Um, obviously, he's not inheriting one of the core elements of mm -hmm. Byzantium, which is the Christian religion. And therefore, from that point of view, although, um, I mean, obviously, per se, if you take Caesar as the whole Roman thing, you know, um, half of it is pagan. But certainly, if you if you talk about the, the Eastern Roman Empire, you are talking about... Um, you are talking about a Christian faith, and um, culturally different from, uh, you know, the Western Roman Empire. And I think, you know, part of the trouble between uh, the, the papacy in Rome and the patriarch in uh, Constantinople, although it was uh, to do with, um, you know, theology, uh, the liturgy, and and the role of the papacy. A lot of it, this this was cultural, quite honestly. You know, these are different people. I mean, when the Crusaders turned up, you know, in 1098, they were astonished and aghast at the uh, at Eastern Christianity. These these were people. These were these were people. These were Middle Eastern people. They want. They're not Europeans. They're, they're different mm -hmm. people. Um, but so I I don't know. I think you could probably make a reasonable reasonable case yes that he was because he was inheriting it he could call himself a caesar mm. and he was desperate to be called caesar um <laughs> right <laughs> he was and um Suleiman the magnificent you know really wanted to make a picture of getting rome you know mm -hmm. <laughs> which he failed to do but um, <laughs> right so, yeah um well great this has been fascinating um thank you so much uh, mr crowley for, for going through all this uh, you know it's one of these pivotal moments in you know well, european history byzantine history ottoman history you know the history of the of eurasia really um and uh, it's nice to have it in detail despite all these gaps in our knowledge have you have you ever been to istanbul guard i have yes i did i was there just uh, about a few weeks ago uh, oh, i did a trip in there and right. uh, actually as part of my trip i walked along the land walls um and uh, was still astonished by they're heavily restored of course in places but the scale is still very impressive could you walk along the land walls i i thought um, they they tried to seal them off yeah, or I should say, um, not not along on top of, kind of uh, on the outside, uh, like like by oh, that. Oh, walking along outside it, yeah. Right, yeah. right, like, like by the garden yeah. belts and the, where the yeah. moat was. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, you you obviously got a you know a sense of what mm -hmm. this was. It is a bit weird the way they've rebuilt it, but um, it gives you a good sense, doesn't it? Actually, of you know what these were. They yeah, were it a does. 
fantastic piece of work. Absolutely so fantastic. Yeah, have the, uh, the the old uh, you know Golden Gate is you know the, the Yeti Coulee, I guess you know it's open as a museum, and you, you can go up on top of there, and there you can kind of see the wall stretching off you know towards the you know Sea of Marmara on they, the one have side. Have they reopened? Have they reopened? They it? have, yes, just I think a few I, years when ago. When I was there, when I was there last year, it was still closed. Actually, I really like going up on the going up on the top there. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the best places to see the walls isn't it actually oh it is yeah it was was a howling wind it came off the sea but you know when i could stand up it it was a beautiful (laughs) view (laughs) yeah you know this time of the year it can be a bit parky oh yeah but but, uh, Um, yeah i mean you i think the great thing about going to this city is that actually you can relive the siege mm -hmm. quite honestly you know you can you can go to you know hagia sophia where they all you know um Mm -hmm. you can go past the monument of constantine outside the grand bazaar Mm-hmm. where an angel with a flaming sword was going to turn back the <laughs> right. infidel, but unfortunately failed to do it on that day. You can mm-hmm. see the sea walls. I don't know if you went up the Golden Horn in a boat, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, you know, it's because because of its configuration, because it is surrounded by water on two sides, you know, and it, it, you you can't get any urban sprawl within the city, really, you mm-hmm. know, and the, and the areas that... The, the the middle way they call it the main street with which the the tram mm-hmm. goes up um you know with created by constantine right, um, right. and and the, the footprint of those of, of the web of of main arteries go right back to constantine you know it's uh, the urban urban structure is still pretty much intact mm-hmm. so you know it is absolutely fascinating actually did you did you manage to go down a byzantine system Oh yes, yeah. No, I, yeah. I had a um, so the, the Basilica cistern, of course, you know, and uh, the um, uh, Binbir Durex cistern. Uh, so I went down to the two, the two big ones, and yeah. I hadn't been down yeah. there. You know, I went down the first time I was in Istanbul, you know, years and years ago, and I hadn't yeah. been since. Yeah, and they've really, yeah. uh, as I'm sure you've seen, they've really done quite a job in the atmospheric lightning down there in the Basilica cistern. Um, yeah, it's yeah I'm not quite sure whether I like it or not, but, it, uh, but it's, yeah, in a way, it's, it's it's quite dramatic, isn't it? Actually, I love those systems. I think they're just so fantastic. Actually. Oh, they're great. Yeah, it's those endless lines of columns. Um, but yeah, you get a sense yeah. again of the scale of Byzantine city, and like you said, you know that you can go down, you know the the Divan Yolu, right? Just as they may say. Um, yeah, no, it, it's 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 fascinating. And there's uh, a whole subterranean world under the Hippodrome there. Apparently, mm-hmm. you know there. Are, you can you can float around under there in boats. You know, there's a whole there's a whole under <laughs> oh, right. there. I mean, it is a, it is a tell, you know, in terms of right, you right, know, yeah, yeah, you know, one layer on top of another. Actually, mm-hmm. really, really, really fantastic. Yeah, uh, good chat. But, uh, but anyway, yeah. Well, well, thank you so much uh, for going through all this. Um, to everyone listening, uh, 1453 and uh, Roger Crowley's other books are available wherever books are sold. Um, check them out. And uh, again, uh, Roger, thanks so much. Okay, well, thank you very much, Gareth. It's always a pleasure to talk about this, and um, I'll I'll check out your podcast and try not to listen to my bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, and everyone, yep. uh, thanks for listening.